This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak. And this is episode 229 with Jenna Parkney. Jenna's heartbreak is twofold. We start with the heartbreak of coming into what you believe is going to be your dream job. And then it ends up not really being the dream, but it's still at the dream company. It's still not the dream though. And the heartbreak of that, of it not being what you thought it was going to be, not being able to be at your dream job inside of the dream company, yourself, not being able to be yourself for 60 hours of the week. I'm fascinated by the heartbreak within that, probably because I've always been off on my own. So I like to peer behind the curtain of what it's like for someone that is showing up to work for someone else and to make their dreams come true. So we speak about that and then losing that job during the pandemic and how there was a silver lining there. We also talk about another heartbreak, and that is the heartbreak of losing her brother in a fire. We get into that about 25 minutes into our conversation. And as I was listening to it back, I was like, wow, it really took me 25 minutes to get to this point in her life, an event that has shaped her so dramatically, so drastically. And I was like, how did that happen? What took so long? And of course, it was because there's this other heartbreak that I think is so relevant to so many people that are listening. But it was also because I've been going through this all-consuming heartbreak of my own. (sighs) The emotions have hit me like I don't ever remember them hitting me before. And I'm really trying to see my way out of what feels like just dread and darkness. And I think it took me a while to get to the heart of the matter because I'm scared at times to feel so much because I have been feeling so much. So I want to thank my guests in particular, all my guests too, that have been sitting down with me, having no idea what I'm going through and have shared themselves, shared their lives, have been so vocal and have been so gracious with the amount of wisdom that they're giving to me, the amount of connection that they are providing me. You know, that was always what I believed would be the solution for the heartbreaks that I was up against in life was connection. So I know that even as I am navigating my own personal life issues, 
that thank you heartbreak and the guests that come on and those of you who are listening, you really are helping me. You're being that that hand guiding me through what feels like a dark night of the soul. Definitely some dark nights. I hope I can bring myself to reveal what this has been. And as much as the episodes are about other people's stories, and you guys can tell me this, I feel like it would be beneficial to hear about the heartbreak of the host. Um, This is more than romance. This is about identity, really, about life choices, about, you know, where is my life going? What am I doing? What do I want to do? What am I preventing myself from doing? Who have I become? Who haven't I become? Who do I want to become? How do I change? What's stopping me? What's preventing me? What do I need to do next? I mean, the questions are just rolling in at all times. So again, you know, thank you, everyone that has showed up for Thank You Heartbreak because when everything is taken away, I've had this and this has always been my dream. And thank you also for your patience with me. It's hard to show up at times, but I'm doing the best that I can. So thank you for being with me as I'm faced with the lifelong task of growing up. I dated someone that is from Ohio, and I remember, what was he saying? Oh, I guess it was, he's more modest than the average New Yorker. Modest? I don't know if I'd say modest. (laughs) Um, I'm from, like, deep, like, Rust Belt in the Midwest, so in terms of men I feel like they're more like gritty and like we've got a bit of like an ego problem oh really I would I wouldn't say that's modest um but a lot of really hardworking people so you can find like the rare gems really hardworking like down to earth now have you ever used the apps in Ohio dating apps not like for extended periods of time maybe like here or there but I wasn't like actively dating for a long time when I was home if I was I was like it was like in friend groups and things like that so not as much but now I would be terrified to go back and be on them I'm not gonna lie I just feel like it'd be super cringy (laughs) compared to like the Orlando market or the Tampa market it's definitely a smaller pool of men up north so Hmm. how is it in in Orlando Pleasantly surprised, um, but I guess it depends on your type <laughs> too. Um, you're not looking for, you know, the typical the Florida boys, you know, that like to be like outdoors and things like that, which you know I find attractive in in that sense. Um, you're probably not going to get much luck, but <laughs> Orlando is really unique. It's a very diverse area, so very different from where I grew up. So there's definitely more options here. So it's amazing to hear that that was your dream to live in Florida, to be in Orlando, right? (laughs) Yes, I was. um, I shouldn't say I was. I was a really big Disney adult. I had really always wanted to be a part of the the company and work there. I had so many positive experiences growing up with my family at Disney. And so I, in a sense, wanted to do that for other people. 
And um, being a cast member was obviously like the most direct way of doing that. So yeah, I always had this like little urge to, I was just, it's not, it was not little, it was always there to like be in warm weather and be like closer to Disney and like be around things that I really enjoyed. So that is just fascinating to me. I think Disney terrifies me, but I know so many people have this draw toward it. What do you feel, though, about, you know, like some people will say, oh, Disney is responsible for dating problems these days and our expectations being bad. And, you know, like, do you ever find that? Like, what was your experience growing up on Disney? Yeah, for sure. You definitely have this image in your head of what Prince Charming is going to be. And um, I definitely what have is he? Really long time. <laughs> He's different for everyone, but you're definitely, if you are in that bubble, I think you want that fairy tale. I think all women do to an extent. But now that I'm older, I'm 25 now. I'm so old and wise. So old. You could be wise. You're probably very, very wise. I don't doubt that. Uh, but um, now looking back on it, it's like, oh, the things that I expected out of relationships were were sort of not silly in a way, but maybe a little immature and a bit of false reality there. What really goes on in a relationship and how imperfect they are and uh, more of an, like an unconditional love, I would say. Um, I was exposed to more as I got older, but oh yeah, I had those like dreams of you know, getting proposed to in front of the castle and things like that. But those are out the door now. <laughs> that is not, that is definitely not what I want now. But I definitely dreamt about those things for a long time, for sure. Hmm. Okay, so what is like the scene now? So you moved, the pandemic happened, you got this job that you wanted and then it stopped, right? Yeah, so I graduated college from Ohio in Youngstown, Ohio. Immediately post-grad, I had accepted an offer my senior year to work as a guest experience manager at Disney. So in operations in the parks, um, managing and assisting with guests. You're, you're basically an in-park in, in manager. So I was in food and beverage in that line of business. Fortunately enough, um, I had experience in that line of business. So I was able to kind of just jump in to the work. And that was like the greatest thing, I think, for me, because I had accepted this like big girl job right out of school. I was at this company that I had dreamt about working for. Mm -hmm. I was moving to Central Florida, like all these dreams were like kind of coming to fruition. And I would say about three months into working, I realized it was not what I wanted at all. Oh, so this had nothing to do with the pandemic. You just realized being there three months in. This was like prior to it. I was starting to like unravel and like see kind of what my like kind of die like you know you get there and you're so excited and you're so optimistic about the work that you're doing and then I was just getting burnt out really fast. I felt like I was constantly missing the mark. Maybe I wasn't you know talented enough. Maybe I wasn't old enough. Maybe you know what all these things were kind of going through my head and I had this expectation that was so high right coming in that the little bumps were like pulling me down. Like they were weighing down so heavily on me. Um, it took a lot of my confidence. So I, when I talk about it now, flash forward, you know, seven months later, you know, I was like dragging through. I feel like at this point, I mean, there were a lot of highs um, in my experience, but internally and emotionally, I was really struggling. So when COVID hit, while it was the worst thing to maybe lose my career. It was honestly the best thing because it pushed me into a new path that was probably more suitable for my life and something that I definitely will enjoy maybe a lot more or, you know, feel a little bit more passionately about, you know, I don't think I grew up 
you know, I grew up wanting to work at Disney, but I didn't grow up saying like, I want to be a restaurant manager, like mm. be like for the rest of my life. And those things, some people have those dreams. And I met people that have those dreams and were so passionate about what they were doing. But my focus wasn't necessarily on that. It was more on the people and creating that magic for guests and more so, you know, that like central development of, of other people and, and creativity. That's really where I prosper. So I would say COVID was a bit of a blessing in disguise. Maybe I didn't realize it in that moment, but <laughs> come full circle, it was really one of the greatest things that has probably, you know, so I think I would have stayed at, at Disney and I would have kept trucking along until I had reached a breaking point and my mental health was probably, you know, not at a capacity where I would have enough confidence to try something new. So I think COVID kind of drew a line in the sand for me and said, you know, reevaluate what you want out of your life and out of your career. Right. Don't waste this time just until you burn out. You know, like you said, you would have stayed there for a lot longer. And it's amazing how it can take like a, well, I guess, you know, the pandemic was a tragedy to change our lives. You know, it's like we have to be pushed out of something in order to take the leap. Yeah. Uh, like heartbreak of my God, this is something I worked so hard for for years and years and years. And now it's like just evaporated, <laughs> like it's gone. There's, you know, really no no way to get it back, you know. And, and that was another thing that I struggled with. I really thought maybe I would go back, but the opportunities just weren't there. And um, it took a long time. And obviously you have to move on and you have to, you can't just wait around and, you know, sit on unemployment forever <laughs> and wait for and That was nice for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Like I just could I had to do something. I was like, go from 60 hours a week, like working in an operation on my feet all day to like nothing. It's like, now you're sitting in these feelings and with these emotions, you kind of have to do something with it. So that's how, you know, I started freelancing and then my business kind of grew out of that. So so many questions, but what was what, when you were home and without this job on unemployment, what were like some of the feelings that came rushing in and this new sense of reality? Like, what were you thinking about yourself? I had a lot of imposter syndrome. It took probably because I think too, for, for me personally, and I don't know, you know, other everyone's experience with pandemic was very different. I had been dealing with a lot of emotional, you know, problems in my current position. So when I was at Disney with not feeling like I was good enough or, you know, having to present myself in a certain way that maybe wasn't aligned with my core values or maybe, you know, me as a person, you know, I have to be more assertive or, um, mm. you know, be nicer, you know, so I don't come off a certain way and you have to please a lot of people. There's a lot of people in those operations. So you're constantly juggling all of those balls at the same time. And then I had creative endeavors. I had these projects I really were, I was passionate about. So um, there was a lot going on. And then when the pandemic happened, I had this overwhelming sense of like imposter syndrome when I would go to apply for jobs. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't qualified enough and it was me, right? It, on paper I was, but I think the energy that I was putting into my applications, my interviews mm -hmm. wasn't reflecting that, you know, self-confidence I had prior to starting my position post-grad. So that was like the biggest thing was building up my self-worth and my confidence again, because Ultimately, you know, it happened to so many people, you know, so many people lost their jobs, so many people had this traumatic experience. Um, and it wasn't like single handedly happening to me, because I wasn't good enough. And so I had to get that out of my head. And it took a long time, because I think it was it was festering on its own before that. And that was really hard. And, and applying for jobs too, looking at the market now, I'm like, oh, okay, it wasn't just me. There was really not a lot of jobs out there. That's true. 
That's true. <laughs> like people were scared to hire. So I was like pushing out for all these positions and like, you know, like career paths I wasn't even interested in just so I could have that stability and, and you know, keep my brain working and, and do something, you know, with myself. And there's a lot of pressure, you know, as a young individual post-grad to have that job and have that security. So I definitely was feeling it from you know, society and then my friends and family who were like, what's she going to do? You know, like we want to make sure she's taken care of and like that support. So yeah, imposter syndrome was probably the biggest thing and building up that confidence that took a really long time. Oh my God. I mean, I just think about how I'm almost a decade older than you <laughs> and it's so real like this. I've never had a real job. I've never been fully employed at a company. And it's a weird thing, you know, to be 34 and never having had that and feeling like, oh my God, I can't come into a relationship and say, this is what my yearly salary is. And just over time, like kind of what that I think has done to me and how it's made me question my self-worth. Like I think about during the pandemic, a lot of people were in this position where the first time they don't have a job, they don't know where it's going to come from. There's no paycheck coming in. And it was crippling for people. It was a relief for me because for the first time I felt like people were in my situation, right? (laughs) And I just like, I'm like listening to you. I'm like, I don't know how I've done it for so long. I don't know. It's just like this weird feeling. I don't know if you experienced it, you know, getting out of college. It seems like you did. But the idea of what does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to be responsible for your own life? You know, when you're in high school, it's like you follow this schedule and you show up and you know exactly what it's going to be. And and jobs provide you with that, too. Like you said, 60 hours a week, 60 hours a week and being told, which I can't even comprehend. I'm so bad at this, but being told you need to behave in a certain way and you need to please these people. And I imagine with Disney, it can be very performative. Yeah. I think it's hard to, and maybe you can speak to this is like with a job, you're going in and you're putting forth this persona that isn't completely you. And that's so many hours of your life. Yeah. I just, how do you really find yourself when you're working for someone else during that time is I know you're not anymore, but how are you like still tapping into who you are, not just who you are for the job? I had a ton of that internal conflict, right? Because I mean, full transparency, I was showing up in an operation that was very revenue generated Mm -hmm. and my mindset and my like desire for leadership was more in people. So Mm -hmm my first priorities maybe didn't align with other members, maybe on my team or with executives or really with the bottom line, essentially. And so I was constantly at this, like with this friction of like, get the numbers, but like, we really want to take care of the cast. And I really want to take care of the guests. Like, this is what I really want to do. I really don't want to be, you know, back here looking at the operation. I want to be out there talking to people, developing Mm -hmm. them, you know, taking, making sure that everyone's cared for. So I dealt with that really heavily when I would come home because it wasn't who I was to sit in bark orders or analyze process. I mean, yes, that was part of my job, but that wasn't like the improvements that I saw that could be made were with the people. And that was the mindset that I had. And I thought that was the value that I brought to the table at that organization. And I realized really quickly, like, they didn't want that, you know, they didn't, they didn't really value that they more wanted somebody who could think quickly on their feet and 
not that I couldn't necessarily do that, but they wanted someone who was more focused on that bottom line and how can we improve these numbers and things like that. And it just wasn't how my brain had ever really, you know, operated before or what I really wanted to do. That was a struggle for me. And I, I do take so much of what I learned from that organization and those processes and like mapping and like going through, you know, strategically how to run an operation. And I do it now with my business because it's so valuable. So I learned that, but I wish I would have given more of me, you know, and centering around people and, and taking care of people and realizing that like, we can't be successful. We can't get these numbers up if our people are being pushed to the ground every day or, you know, they're burnt out or whatever is going on. That was my personal experience. I don't want to say like reflect on the whole company or other departments or other organizations, like other locations within the parks, because it's all very different, but it was my experience and it really shocked me. And um, I had a really hard time with it because like I said, I would come home at night and I would have such like an internal conflict because I wasn't able to present myself as who I was. And I think that's the expectation that, you know, maybe society has, or these, you know, large corporations have that, are pushing people out the door right now. We like we have the great resignation. We have all these things happening because people right. aren't realizing this is not their identity and they don't want it to be. They want more out of their lives than, you know, to align themselves with someone else's vision that they don't really agree with. And so we're seeing a lot of that now, which I think is great because it's opening a transparency and a conversation with employers and big corporations of you know, how do we treat people? You know, are we really, I mean, they could have kept paying me more. I still like, I would have had more money maybe, but at the end of the day, I still would have went home and been like, this isn't who I am. You know, no right. amount of money is going to change who I am. Right. Or make it worth it. This yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, make it worth it to, to be there. But yeah, that pressure immediately out of college, I felt it like very heavy, like have a steady paycheck, <laughs> get the engagement or boyfriend, whatever's next, you know, get the house, like all of those did you really? Sequential things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when pandemic hit, it was like a oh, full stop on everything. Totally. <laughs> full stop on uh, relationships, on uh, anything that was going on. It was like the sequential order was now being put to a halt, but that's been thrown out the door. So, <laughs> how did you comfort yourself during that time? Like, here you are in a new place. Did you know a lot of people? I didn't. And um, after maybe a month or two into the pandemic, a lot of people had either, you know, decided to move back home because Orlando is like a lot, there's a lot of locals, but a lot of people, you know, in my community necessarily right. had to come work at Disney. So a lot of people moved away or moved back home, you know, because they didn't know what was going to happen. And then as the months passed, I think people took on more opportunities all over the country. So that community that I had had kind of fizzled out. And so I didn't really know a lot of people. So I had moved in with a boyfriend in April. No. Yeah. April. And then like, or no, no, we moved in. We moved in in March, I think at the end of March. Like That was like, right. The right pandemic. The yeah. yeah. Right in the beginning. Two weeks, two weeks in. Yeah, two weeks in. Two weeks in. And then, um, but we hadn't broken up until like a month or so later. I think we just, you know, I was stressors and everything like that. It just didn't work out. And thank God for him. He's one of my really good friends now, but um, cause we share that obviously that traumatic experience of losing jobs and, and being at home and not knowing what to do with ourselves and scary and fear, all that nice. stuff. So yeah, I found a lot of comfort in being at home with the dogs and like resting. And I really dove deep into like you said earlier, like finding myself, I, that sounds like so silly. Like, how do you sit down and find yourself? Well, like that's really what happened. 
Sometimes I just feel like I'm in my room just thinking and trying to find myself. Like it's, it's, it's not always these activities. It's really sometimes just a thought process. Yeah. Like sitting in your thoughts and in your feelings. And the biggest thing I started to do because I did it all the time at work is I started asking myself why. Yes. One of the things I always did, no matter like where, like I always wanted to find, you know, like break the size quote, like how can we do things better? So I was always asking why any organization I was in, like that was always, why do we do this? Why do we stop doing this? When did we, you know, all those questions. So I started doing that to myself. Like if something irritated me, I would say, why is that irritating me? Or if I saw this job and it was like, Oh, I really want to do that. It was like, why do, is it because of the, the salary or is it because of the job description? Like I started really like almost playing games with myself. Like, well, why are you doing that? Like stopping, you know, the mm. thought process and really analyzing it because in that moment I had realized I had done things, maybe 50% of what I really wanted to do and 50% of what other people wanted me to do. And I was done with that, like that scale, like that scale was out the door. It was like, this is going to be hundred percent a new opportunity for Jenna to do what she wants to do. And that was, that was the majority of quarantine, which I think happened for a lot of people too. I think a lot of people like sat down and reflected a lot on what they want out of their lives and who they are and what life means to them. What was the vulnerability like of being with a new boyfriend or maybe he wasn't new, but a boyfriend moving in and questioning your life alongside of them? You have to tell me, like, how did you do this? I think he brought on a lot of thought-provoking, like very opposite of who I was. Very analytical, very deep dive into questions and like understanding, you know, maybe he was asking why before I was. And then I probably like adopted that from him. But that transformation was in itself something really unique because there was the person that I was maybe, you know, two months ago. And then as I evolved, I think there was a lot of questioning from people in that like small little bubble that I had left of like, who is she or why is she doing this? Or like, who does she think she is? If that makes sense, like they're almost like, where did this come from? You know? So as you evolve, you like, not that I wasn't outgrowing him or, you know, my friends here, but I was growing in a different way. Like I was growing in a different trajectory. I didn't want that stability anymore. I wanted to do like the freelancing stuff. I had this creative energy. I wanted to get out. And so my mindset was completely different than what it had been, you know, when we moved in or when we started dating. So like he was very supportive and, you know, figure out what you need to figure out. And I like, I'm very grateful for that because there was never a time where I felt like maybe, I mean, at this that point we had been broken up. So it's like, really, it didn't matter. I mean, I valued his opinion, but at that point it was like, yeah, it, you're, it's not, it's okay. If I don't want to see something that you think is you know, good for me, right? I can do it myself. Um, so that newfound independence, I think, maybe shocked a lot of people, or even just like the more joy that I was feeling, or the new like, oh, I'm getting more, you know, like savoring moments a little bit more, and like, I sort of had like a head in the clouds, which I still do. I still carry that a lot um, mentality. So people are probably like, what is she like, woo woo now? Like, what's going on? Like, so I think a lot of people were confused, and I think he was too. Like, who's this for? What does this mean? But always very supportive, you know, at the end of the day. And that's why like, we're still really good friends now. So congrats on that. It's very rare for people. I love that. Not typical, but you go through an experience like that with someone, it's very hard not to like empathize with one another, right? Like both of us kind of got swept out from under the rug. He was in the same, like similar position as I was at Disney. So 
really for the both of us, it was like, like everything, everything came to a crushing halt. So at that point we only had each other. So it worked out, but yeah, definitely not typical. Like people were like, you should just move home. <laughs> right. Just but go you, home. And why didn't you, why didn't you? That is a great question. I think I had pushed so far forward to get here and to be in Florida that my mindset, if I went back home, would look like I had not failed, but maybe was moving backward. And I think I was really afraid of that. I had this push that I wanted to do something bigger and better than what I was doing before. And I think I had a lot of pressure on myself that I couldn't go home because I was nervous that I would fall back into the mindset that I had you know, where I was pleasing other people or I was doing things, you know, not really for myself, but to make other people happy. So that was my biggest fear moving back home. And I learned that, you know, you learn how to set those boundaries for yourself and, you know, the people in your life. So yeah, at that time I was like, so afraid. I was like, I don't want to go back to the cold. I'm going to be so sad. I mean, like I had done all these amazing things and now it's like, I'm already so sad. I don't want to go back, but I, I really do have a very supportive family and like friends. So I don't, it's not like I was avoiding them by any means, but I just really had worked so hard to get out of there. It sounds so crazy, but no, I mean, it takes a lot of momentum to yeah. take yourself somewhere else. No one knew what was going to happen during the pandemic to go home. You could have, you know, you didn't know if you're going to end up there for five years. Right. You know, you yeah. get so comfortable, really you good. stay. Yes. I was afraid of that. I didn't want to settle. I did, like was so afraid of settling back home because I had really enjoyed my life in Florida. And I really wanted to make it work no matter what here. Did you ever feel like responsible for showing up after your brother passed away? that you should be saying yes and you should be spending all this time with your family because they lost one of their children and you need to kind of be in the place. Did you ever feel that? Yes. I felt that immediately. I would say like within the year or two after his passing, like right up until I graduated, probably the heaviest. I mean, I still feel that ache now, but after it happened, I think a lot of people expected me to slow down or pull back on, you know, maybe my, my dreams or my aspirations and stay home and, you know, make a life there and, and be around my family and, and, you know, fill that, maybe fill that void in a way. And that maybe was subconscious that was never projected onto me, but I realized that this was something that I always wanted to do. and his entire passing would mean more if I fulfilled my dream, you know, or fulfilled my ambitions because he, you know, didn't have that opportunity and, and he would be supportive of that. Like he always, I mean, never was like, don't move to Florida. He's like, yeah, do it. So I can come visit. Like, you know what right, I mean? Right, like, right. So I did feel that pressure really heavily after like, oh, I should stay here. I really need to take care of my mom and, you know, my dad and my family and be that support system and that rock. But at the same time, they all were sort of like, you have to do, you know, what you want to do for your life. And, and he would be supportive of that. So ultimately it, it came down to that. But I think too, I'm very free spirited. So my family was like, she's going either way. Like we could pressure her into it and we could like beg her to stay, but she's going to make her own decision and, and do it anyway. So very grateful for that. But yeah, definitely hard to think about like leaving your family after something like that. Cause it was, yeah, 2017. And then I had left in 2019. So it was oh, wow. still very fresh. Shows, I mean, still very recent. Yeah. Yeah. 
what was that experience? Like, I have to ask, like, in terms of getting, like, I imagine you got a phone call. Yeah. So I had lived about 20 minutes away at the time on campus at my college. And like super early in the morning, I want to say like 6.45, my um, like aunt had called me three or four times. And I was like, okay, why is she calling me this many times in the morning? I'm sleeping. It was a Friday morning. Um, so I had like, I don't know if I, oh, I was, I went and saw a play the night before. So I was like tired. I was exhausted. I was like, what is she doing? And um, my aunt had said, hey, there's been a fire at the house. You need to get here right now. Whose house? So my mom's house. So context, my mom lived in a house um, with my stepdad at the time. And then my little brother and then my older brother, Josh, had an apartment above our garage. So it was kind of like almost like a mother-in-law type of, you know, that's how you put it. So he had a full apartment up there that he lived in. And that's all I knew. My boyfriend at the time was with me and I was like, we have to go, I guess. Like, I don't know what's going on. So got dressed, ran out the door. It was like the slowest drive of my life. I think no one had called me on that entire drive, except my dad. And he had just asked where I was. And I said, I'm five minutes away. And he said, okay, we'll see you when you get here. Bye. And that was, that was it. (laughs) And then I pulled up to the house and I don't know, like, I mean, timeline wise now, but at the time I had no idea that, you know, the entire road, my entire street was blocked off, you know, with fire trucks and the media was there, like reporters from like three different stations. Like it was, it was chaos. And like, I remember my boyfriend was like rolling the window down. He was like, we're family, we're family, like let us through. And they're like, yeah, we're like go ahead. And before we could even get to my driveway, I think I like jumped out of the car. I was like running. Oh, it's all very blurry. But in that moment, I think I knew as soon as we got there that something was really, really wrong. And that, you know, I, I always say, you know, when I reflect on it, that there was literally a piece of my heart that I feel like just went off. Like it's such an immense form of emotion feeling like you had literally lost a part of you and I know people experience that in many forms of heartbreak but um like I knew in that moment something was really wrong so obviously you know they were you know maintaining the fire and things like that but you know nobody ever said to me like he's in the house. like it was just there yeah so he I mean it was the his whole apartment was gone and then we had a lot of like damage on the side of our of our family home or my family's home. And just like a lot of, I mean, like there, the windows that had been open, the smoke had gotten inside my family home. So I remember like we had all the dogs in the car, like with the windows down because they couldn't be in the houses, like smoke damage everywhere. It was, it was chaos, chaos. Um, but I think there up until like funeral and all of that is like super blurry. Like it was just like, it's like watching a movie for me. Like, um, like I don't see it as myself, but, um, yeah, it was crazy. It was so crazy. It's, it's, it's so interesting because it feels like it was so like such a short period ago, but it was five years now. You see these reporters and then do your parents rush out? Like, where are they? Like what happens? So I like was running down, like got to the bottom of the driveway. Mom, like immediately meets me halfway and just like, like big like bear hug like just and I like remember like that's my screaming like that's my brother that's my brother where's my brother and it was just like so oh my god it's like a scene from a movie (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it it was so 
surreal. I didn't expect to wake up that morning and have anything like that happen to me. And so after that, it was like greeting everyone that had already arrived and there was miscommunication. So, I mean, I was getting so many calls because the initial report was that a 20 year old had died in a fire at my home address. So Mm -hmm. my friends didn't know that I was home or where, if I was on campus, whatever, because I go home a lot. So I was getting calls like, are you okay? Like we thought it was you, nobody knew if it was, you know, male, female or whatever. Like it was, it was chaos. And then we couldn't even make calls fast enough to our family or immediate family because the news was like pushing it out like crazy. Like we had reporters going live on our property. It was insane. You know, and I have so much respect for, you know, journalists and what they do. And, you know, there's, people that I was lucky enough to be friends with and had relationships with at some of the local news stations that really, you know, handled it really, really well and were very respectful. But other people, they were just like pestering. I remember like people were like pestering, like, can we get a quote? Like, can we get, I'm like, go away, (laughs) go away. That's not what I need right now. So um, yeah, it was just chaos, like literal chaos. Such a surreal thing to think about um, not being able to contact someone again just like that. Yeah. Think about that all the time. Like there are so many moments when grief shows up that it doesn't matter if it's a good memory or a bad memory, or like you're having a good moment in the present or a bad moment. Like grief does not care. Like I could be having like the best day ever and there will still be that absence or that like, I want to call like and say, Hey, guess what I did today? Or like, look at this, you know, amazing thing that like, or look at my balcony, like look at the sunset. I don't know, little things like that. And that is such a heavy burden of heartbreak. It's unimaginable. How do you, do you come to terms with it or begin to come to terms with someone's life ending short, coming up short? I think for me, I like took a long time to find like, it took probably about a year for me to shift from why did this happen to me and my family to what does this really mean? Like, what does this life really mean? Because my brother wasn't a very, like, I mean, he was not reserved at all. He's very outgoing, very extroverted, like always like would like give you the shirt off his back type of guy, like very spontaneous, like Sagittarius energy, like very crazy free spirit. So as I started to grieve and to mourn, I was realizing that I was like, grieving this like sad, really somber, like identity of him and like what Mm. he was. And that wasn't true. Right. Mm. So I found a lot of peace in like the storytelling and remembering processing the like meaning of his life was not about, you know, maybe being sad all the time. I still have those moments here and there, but it was more about like, how can we celebrate him or what do I really find comfort in? It took a really long time. I don't want to say like, oh, I woke up one day and you know saw a fire truck and I was okay, right? Like those things for a while were really big triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you find comfort in the fact that you know that person so well and you know that if they were still here, they wouldn't want you to have that negative you know, energy or to have that really sad, like depressive state you know, carried with you every single day. That was what I found the most you know, comfort in was knowing that if he was still here, he wouldn't want me to be sad. It sounds like, like, I feel like it sounds very cliche, like, oh, they would want you to be happy. Like, yes, they would. But really taking that to like a deeper meaning and, and really embodying it. My brother had a tattoo that said the road to hell was paved with good intentions. 
And so like, I always carried that, you know, you can say one thing and you can, you can say that you're going to do all these things. Right. But to do them and to put the action into something means more. That's kind of how I processed it all was finding what actions could I take to celebrate his life instead of, you know, maybe being sad. And that wasn't all like about remembering him. It was about, you know, maybe exploring myself a little bit more and and finding ways that I could find joy despite this really negative experience. What do you remember being one of your first like genuinely joyful moments after he passed away where you felt present to the joy? So he was like, a, this like I was like, always say like, you wouldn't always find him blowing something up. Like we lived on a farm. So it was like very much outdoor, like spontaneous energy. And um, anytime he had like a bonfire or a big celebration, he would go nuts with fireworks. Like I'm telling, I'm talking like, like insane, like unbelievable amounts of fireworks. Um, and <laughs> Everyone would come. Yeah, it's such a silly thing. So we had a get together, like almost like a kegger. Like we had all of his friends there. Everybody was hanging out, drinking, have a good time, like bonfire. And um, my other brothers and like his friends, we had gotten a lot of fireworks. And I remember like sitting by the fire, just kind of looking up and like, it almost felt like in that moment, he was there, like lighting them off himself. And that was like one of the early moments of finding peace and like, this is what this feeling is going to be now in my life. And I'm, mm-hmm. I have to be okay with that, you know, of that. I know that polarity, right? I know he's not here, but I feel him. I feel him here. I feel his presence. I feel like he's enjoying this with me. Um, and so I would look for those moments. So those are some more of the actions that I would take like, oh, you know, do I feel him around me or what are things that are in alignment with something that he would really enjoy. So yeah, that was, that was probably a big, you know, part of the timeline of grief for me was, was understanding that. And that was maybe, you know, I think it was Memorial day weekend. So it was probably like two or three weeks after he had passed. So pretty early. Have you ever had experiences where you feel like he's going to show up? Like you feel like you're going to have his presence around you and you don't. Yeah. Definitely. When I'm home a lot, I definitely feel like I'm upstairs in my like bedroom and he's like walking through like with screen door. Like he always had like big muddy boots on. (laughs) So you could like hear him like trucking through the house and um, just like, I think those moments and I will, I like, I've been out too, like back home and I'll catch somebody like with the same maybe build or like a flannel, like, cause he was big on flannels and like, just like dressed maybe the way he would be. And I do like a second take, like, yeah. Cause there, there are still those moments where you, you don't like, it's still a shock, like value. Like, I still don't believe he's not here. I still think like maybe, you know, he'll show up one day. I think that is a huge form of grief that, you know, everybody holds on to. Like, I don't want to, ever really truly understand that someone's gone but yeah those moments happen every so often but now I can kind of play around like I live by myself in an apartment so like if something falls off the wall or like there's like some woo-woo stuff going on I'm like oh my god like he's torturing me like he's just trying to like (laughs) to prank me or like scare me so I I, like channel it now in in a different way but in a different way yeah there are still those moments where I'm like oh yeah, like my family went on vacation and like you just like imagine like maybe like him, you know, coming down for breakfast or like walking to the beach or like a joke that would like, you know, get cracked by him or something like that. I think, yeah, it's it's hard. 
you, you try not to dwell on those moments because if you dive too deep in what could be or what is not, that's when I think a lot of the negative, you know, guilt and heavy depression and, and stuff starts to form, you know, from grief. So I try to stay very present. Um, yeah. It's energy, you know, I acknowledge it and I, I express that gratitude, but I try not to think what if. What do you think are some of the more healing things that people can do for someone that they know where someone has passed away and they're going through this grief? One of the greatest things that I've learned is that I would be so confused. Like I used to call it the tiptoe effect. Like people wouldn't want to talk about it around Mm -hmm. now that maybe I was more reserved in my energy and maybe I maybe presented myself in a way where I didn't want to talk about it. And I really do find like, obviously I'm here talking about yeah. it with you. I yeah. find a lot of things in talking about it because it lets me remember his life and it shows me the impact that he had, you know, not on my life, but many of the other people gives me time to reflect on that. So I think if you are dealing with somebody who's grieving, you know, always ask that question, how can I help you? Does it help to talk about it? You know, some of my friends will say like, tell me about him or, you know, do you remember a story or those things, you know, as you set boundaries, if you are grieving, you know, do you become more comfortable with, but if you're dealing with someone who is grieving, ask those questions. Like, don't be, you know, don't be scared to say the wrong thing. Just don't have that tiptoe effect is what I'm saying, because you really never, if they're just afraid to bring it up to you. I dealt with a lot of fear that I was going to dampen the mood or when I would meet Mm -hmm. people, how do I explain this? Because it's such a huge part of me and a huge part of my life. How do I even tell somebody I just met like, you know, Oh, you're really carefree and you have this great positive personality. That's awesome. Well, well, yeah, it's because this happened to me and I don't want to say that to people when I first meet them or when I get to know them. So I dealt with a lot of fear on that, but I realized it's nothing to be embarrassed about. So have those conversations. And especially if there's someone who's close to you, everybody grieves very, very differently. So it's important to have the conversation about how can I help you? What makes this better for you? Or what eases that pain a little bit versus not saying anything at all and hoping that that silence is better for them. I think, you know, there's always a fine line because people, you know, in their emotional journeys are all different. So the best thing you can do is see how you can support somebody and ask and make sure that you're clearly communicating that you're there for them and that whatever way they they seem fit for their healing is going to be okay with you too. Right. And maybe to remember that what someone needs changes over time. Yes. Yeah. Like you might've been in a place where you didn't want to talk about it one night, but that doesn't mean that two days later in the morning, you need someone to ask. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and not talking about it at all for me, you know, over years built up a lot of this, like, you know, anxiety and like, how do I, 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 it like changed very quickly for me when the pandemic hit because like I did a lot of this healing work, but you know, for a long time, I just, people didn't bring it up. So I didn't bring it up and that just put it in a box and I pushed it away. But I realized that was not the best thing for me. If I could go back, I would have, you know, opened up a little bit more to people, but you know, you can't change that. So the best thing I can do is realize that that's what I need to do now. And, um, think for other people, like you said, it, it changes. There are days when I don't, want to, you know, it's too rough or, you know, maybe I, I don't want to go there. And yeah, you just have to be respectful of that. And I, I, I empathize so much with people who are grieving because I understand that now. What was your closest example of grief before this even happened? That's a good question. 
probably the more significant would have been when I lost my dance teacher. So I had, um, I had danced my whole life and we had a teacher when she was, I want to say 17 or 18. She was, she was young. Um, and she died in a car accident and I was in fifth or sixth grade at the time. I think I want to say fifth grade. So I was decently young and, um, seeing that impact on my community and like my dance community and, and all the people that she touched, maybe I wasn't the closest with her, but that absence was the first, you know, maybe real exposure that I had of now I go to this, you know, I go to this dance studio five days a week and this person is not there anymore. And, you know, not by anybody's choice, they just, you know, have passed. And that was probably the first real exposure to, to grief. And I had kind of seen everybody else handle it. I didn't really, you know, internalize it as much. I I think I was so young and didn't really understand, but that was probably the first, first experience I had with anything like that. You know, that feeling of, oh, I can't call them or I can't see them again. I wonder if there's any correlation between you having these experiences where someone's here and then they're gone and you being someone that can keep an ex in your life that sees the value of, of two people that went through and lived through something together that just because they're not right for each other anymore doesn't mean that you they're dead to you. Yes, I, <laughs> I have a very hard time letting go because mm. I see how precious those moments are with people in those relationships. Like my brother and I's relationship wasn't perfect. We bickered, we fought, we were siblings. Like nobody, mm-hmm. I mean, if you get really well with your sibling, like, especially me, I just came out of my teenage years. Like I was brat. So he definitely had to put up with me and, you know, being stubborn all the time. So again, you love them unconditionally. So I think I tend to do that with other people and in my relationships. And even if they do hurt me, you know, it's, I'm always really the last to leave because mm-hmm. I don't want to lose that. And I, I see the, not maybe, I mean, you see the value in the relationship, but you know, I, I don't want that person to be gone for my life forever. I think I fear that. I fear that absence from, you know, people who have meant a lot to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wait, so you fear it more now after your brother passing away? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely fear like losing people close to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that you've been in relationships since, but was it harder to lean into love? Yeah, it was definitely hard to open up to people. Like why open up how, like tell them what's really going on. Yeah. Like say, I think, you know, emotionally for me, that experience changed me in so many ways that it wasn't just like, Oh, I have grief. It was like, my mindset is completely redirected because of this. And this impacts me some days more than others. Like, I think for me in relationships, I would rather just, you know, sit back and have a moment to myself instead of explaining, like, I'm just having a really hard day because I'm thinking about my brother a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, that like, conversation is really hard to have with somebody who maybe doesn't understand that level of grief, you know, that sudden abruptness, because realistically, this is something I'll have to deal with for like the next, if I'm lucky, 60 years, you know, of my life that's crazy to put into perspective. So I think communicating and and putting on a facade that maybe I'm emotionally okay, or I've healed from it is like very hard to do when behind the scenes, I was struggling with it, or I'm still struggling with it. And you have an expectation in a relationship too, to be there for another person. So I think I struggle with 
maybe that perfectionism, like, oh, I'm imperfect in this way that I'm going to have to deal with this, you know, for a long time. Have you put the unrealistic expectation on yourself that like, okay, once I'm in a place where I have this more under control or I can bounce back better, I can have these conversations easier, then I'll be in love. Have you ever thought of it like that? Yes. But at the same time, like I definitely have thought like, I have to get over this before I can be with someone else. And that's just, obviously I realized that, you know, prior to, you know, getting in some of my long-term relationships that that's not the case. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think it's morphed into this. I love people unconditionally because I see how precious time is and how precious moments are with people. And if you really love someone and care about them, you should show them. But Mm -hmm. the polarity of that is that I'm always dealt with this ache of like, this can be taken from me at any second. There's always that really heavy balance that like kind of goes back and forth. Like you really want to be joyful in the moment. And then you're like, oh my gosh, this could be taken so soon. Like what, or, you know, or I could go, you know what I mean? So that's like really deep, deep level of it. And I try not to go, you know, on that end of the spectrum very often or or at all really. But, but yeah, it definitely is hard to show up in relationships when you know you're, you're damaged in a way, if that makes sense. But you find people and you attract people in your life that are understanding of that. I think there's a way that you can move on with that healing and you can be open with that person. Yeah. Because I think that the, the one positive is that you get to see how someone responds to your grief. And a lot of us don't know that. And we can think that because we're in love or any number of these things that someone would show up for us and we realize that they don't. And so you kind of have a preview of someone's patience for your discomfort. I think a big thing is, you know, how does someone make you feel when you cry? Yeah. It's like we can hide and we can never want to show someone that, but at the same time, by not showing them, we might not know the reality of how they can comfort us or not. I think that is so important. And like, you bring up a really good point because Like, I think too, a lot of men want to solve the problem, like immediately you can't solve, you know, the problem, like, you know, he's not coming back, like, you know, and and maybe you could find ways to comfort me. And, 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 you know, I've been lucky that I've had great men in my life that have been able to do that. But yeah, like you said, that you see kind of that vulnerability play out right in front of your eyes. And it's like, Mm. Mm. yes, does it make me feel better? Do I feel even more uncomfortable? You know, you know, it's crazy because, you know, so much of dating is in the projection that we put on and that we fall for is thinking that someone's going to be a solution for us. Well, where does that come from? It comes from men looking for solutions for a lot of a female's like struggles, right? And wanting maybe to make their life easier. And then on the other hand, you could be like, oh, it's because they don't want to hear about it. You know, and so it's like the vulnerability of saying that I want you in my life. And I value that you have solutions, but putting solutions on me is a certain type of heartbreak too, because I want to be allowed to be where I am. I want to know that it's okay to be where I am, even though that there's paths to get out of it at a certain point. But it's the whole idea of, you know, not wanting to be a burden. And I think the hardest thing is, and it's amazing that you don't live in this, is this belief that, oh, I need to be in a different place so I don't bring any burdens into something. And I didn't realize this until actually this guy came on my podcast and really pointed out how that thought is like that I have low a low sense of self-worth. 
And I was like, how dare someone? That's not true. But in a way, it's like, it's believing that you're not lovable until this part of you is fixed. This part of you is whole. And so I, I, I can see where, like, how daunting you go through the, the loss of a sibling. And like you said, that's not going to change. And when I listen to you and you talk about grief coming out of the blue or this really positive moment that can be met suddenly with something that pains you. And it's, it's hard to, you know, explain to yourself and to someone else that this is all over the place, that there's not going to maybe be consistency here. And yet when I also listen to you, I'm like, but this is like the beauty of life. Like I, I truly believe that sensitivity coming out and emotions coming out, I would think that someone would identify that as beautiful. Like, wow, this person has a capacity to feel and to love and to understand what it's all about and how beautiful of an experience and how fortunate am I that I get to be chosen by you after all that you have known and seen and felt and you know the risk that it is to open your heart and someone to be taken away. For you to choose anyone is such a compliment, I would think, to them. It should be. Yeah. I love just, I love that you say it that way. I'm very, like, it's so flattering, but it, it is true. Like I find myself in these positions where, you know, people really value and they really appreciate this idea that I have on life or this like radiant energy of positivity. Mm-hmm. It comes with this mm-hmm. really dark, traumatic thing. Like you said, there's so much beauty in that. And that's why like you kind of when you figure out things are happening for you and not to you, that becomes a little more clear, but yeah, it, it is really, really beautiful. But, you know, having people understand that, you know, it didn't come from like the clouds, like it didn't like morph out of nothing. Right. So um, I do have this like really thick and like, you know, savory appreciation for life and all that it offers. Like I said, like I get told a lot, like my head's in the clouds or like, I'm, you know, this free spirited being, which is great. I love those compliments. I think that I think more people should, you know, embrace that part of themselves. But yeah, when you say it like that, like they should be like, <laughs> like flattered or, you know, so happy to be with someone like me. It, it does. It like makes you feel a little like uncomfortable, but I'm like, Oh, that's my self-worth again, coming back up and saying, okay. yeah, Hey, you, you're capable of, you know, these really amazing things and you have this really great perspective. So share it with people. In a way, like, you know, you're, you are a teacher, you're an example of something. I think a lot of us fear this form of grief that we would be completely taken out by life. And therefore we would also be a burden always to other people because our energy would be so dark. And I'm sure, you know, like when you were in those places, there's a sense that like, you're, you're almost never going to overcome it. Like you will always be so affected by this you always be pained in a way that pushes other people away. And I think for someone to meet someone like you and to be like, oh my God, she can be a free spirit and her head can be in the clouds. She's not completely weighted down by something. Oh my God, there's all this light to her and this light comes from a story that could bring someone to tears. Like, how is that possible? I I think we need more examples in the world of, of people like you. For someone to look at you and be like, you know, this Disney person that was so attracted to Disney and Florida and all this stuff and be like, wow, what a array of light. And yet there's something to that that came from somewhere. And for all of us to 
feel more comfortable about where we come from. And I think that, you know, people talk about the highlight reel of Instagram or whatever. We want to be celebrated for all the accolades and the the big bright moments and, and all the applause. And what would it look like if we were actually being applauded for the things that were hard to live through? And how we found life on the other side. I think that those are really just the more honorable stories because people like you are examples of someone that has gone through something that we all fear that we couldn't get through. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it, like honoring those really tough moments that you've overcome. If we shared more of our wins and our small moments of gratitude, you know, more so than you know, maybe the superficial accomplishments that we think everybody else, you know, wants to see or, or maybe feels value in or connectedness in, you know, I think social media would be a really great place, <laughs> a better place to be. I mean, it is great. Right. You know, that's a lot of what I do with my work is storytelling. And because I know I understand that there is that deeper meaning, like you might have this great, amazing business, but why did you start it again? Now asking that why mm-hmm. question, why did you want to do this? What sparked that motivation in you the same way that you know, my brother's passing sparked this ambition in me to go out and chase my dreams, right? Mm -hmm. That the catalyst for all of, you know, this creation of my life. I love doing that in my business. And I, that's like one of my favorite things about being a creative person is like being able to bring that out of people because I know it's there. I've lived it. I think that's a beautiful way of putting in. It's like honoring, you know, those really tough battles because, if we did that and we offered more of that vulnerability, I think people would feel less alone. And I know what that alone feeling is like. It's it's a terribly dark place. So wait, what is the business? Because I haven't I haven't asked you and I want people to know, especially now hearing and I think we're all a fan of you. So what do you do now? Um, so yeah, I own my online the digital marketing, social media and brand management company is JC Creative Media. So specialize in aligning businesses through social media marketing and website copy to really tell your story. Social media isn't all about, you know, the super aesthetic feed anymore or, you know, having the overly photoshopped pictures, you know, blasting out every single day. It's it's about building your credibility and sharing your your life or you know if you're a personal brand or sharing your business and why you do the things that you do and the value in that so it's so funny because my my business is such a like a baby and like such an infant to me right now like I'm like nurturing it and it's growing but again I wouldn't have had this confidence had I not gone through you know these really heavy battles right to to do all this Right. And I think that it probably like inspired you more to be able to like leave a job and say like, Hey, I'm not going to pretend to be someone else. I'm not going to seem like I care about this thing for 60 hours of the day when I really care about this thing. You know, maybe you were more pulled to choose your life because you know the meaning of life more than the average person. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, it's a really interesting way of putting it, you know, and pulling that out of other people. I, you know, I, I try to do a really good job of finding those moments that maybe people don't see the strength in in themselves through their business or whatever they're working with. You know, people are in their careers for a reason or, or, you know, or they, they build a business for a reason. It's not just like, Oh, like, well, at least all the businesses I work with, maybe you just come up with a really great idea, but it serves a need, right? If we're, if you have a background in marketing, you know, that 90% of 
products, you have to serve a need of your audience. So what need were you trying to fulfill? Was it for you? Was it for your family member? Was it for someone in your community? How do we tell that story and provide that value for your audience? And then ultimately, you know, build your business that way. So much more rare and unique and special to do it that way than to just say, let's promote the heck out of this product, but we're going to forget about the whole, all of the context behind it. The origin story. Yeah. I want to tell the stories. I want to do it digitally. I want to, you know, this is where the the people are these days. Um, And I want to help build brands and help them tell their stories. And where can my audience find you for all that? They can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn. Those are primarily where I'm the most active at Jenna Parkany or at JC underscore creative media on both LinkedIn and um, Instagram. You can connect with me personally. I share a lot more of my personal story on my Instagram and then obviously more professional and creative stuff over on JC's page. So follow me on both or pick your poison, whatever we'll be happy pick to your have poison. You. Oh, also tell me, so I coined the word break upward. What does it mean to you? You know, visually, I immediately go to looking at these huge battles in my life as stepping stones. So you're standing in front of it. It's almost like this giant brick that you like step behind you and then you step on and you move on to the next. You're always in that upward motion of understanding that there's always an opportunity out of something bad that happens to you. It sounds really, really silly, but if you can figure it out now that if something negative is happening to you, there is a lesson behind it and there's an opportunity for you to either do something better or do something different, you will save yourself a lot of like grief. Like maybe not grief, the grief will always be there, but you'll save yourself a lot of anxiety and worry about the things that really, you know, don't matter or aren't necessarily aligned with your path in life. I love that. Do something better or different. Mm -hmm. Something different. Thank you so much for this. Yes, thank thank you so much. I wish I could meet you, like for real, in Florida. Yeah, Yeah. everybody's welcome. Get out of the in the cold weather. You know, anytime it's beautiful here. I'm so glad I got to be on here. Like, I'm so grateful that I can share this because. It means a lot to me and it means a lot, obviously, you know, to your community too. But I like that break upward. I mean, I like, I like it a lot. Start using it. Start telling I, people. I will. Um, yeah, no, I was so happy to see your pitch. You know, it really, really stood out to me and, you know, just it touched me. I have a twin sister, so I'm always on the edge of tears. You know, my biggest delusion has been we came in together that we'll go out together. Yeah. You know? It's so. hard to think of life without the people you care about you only have right now. And you know, those moments that you have with people are, are, are should be cherished. And again, it's this, this weird mindset that came out of this crazy thing, but very grateful for it and grateful for him and, and his legacy that he has on my life. Thanks for keeping it going. Thanks for talking about him. And if you ever want to come to New York, you have a place here. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Chelsea. <laughs> If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, dot com. 
And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.